0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody, I'm Michael Curries. And today we're going to bring you another heartbreaking, but also heartwarming story of a family racing against time to find a treatment for their child's rare disorder. As in every other episode we've done with parents of these children, my guest today is also striving to help all the other kids with the same challenge. But unlike our other parent guests, she and her husband are both physicians, which obviously adds a pretty interesting dimension to the story. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Jerry Landman to raise the line today. Her baby daughter, Lucy, is one of only a few children known worldwide to have a genetic disorder called PGAP-3, in which a single missing gene causes seizures and severe physical and cognitive limitations. We're going to find out about Lucy's struggles and the efforts Jerry and her husband, Zach, are making to help her and many other children through the nonprofit they created called Moonshots for Unicorns, which is funding research into PGAP-3 treatments and other single gene disorders. And there's an interesting connection to autism in all of this that we'll be learning about as well. So thanks very much for being with us today, Dr. Landman.
1: Thank you so much for having me. We love the opportunity to talk about rare disease.
0: So let's start as we always do, with learning more about our guests' personal and professional background. What first got you interested in medicine and then why pediatrics?
1: Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to do medicine from a very early age. You know, I um, love the idea of being able to help others in moments of need. Think when you you're sick yourself or you have a sick family member, you just really want someone that you can who will empower you. And then in medical school, you know, I just loved pediatrics. I loved the idea of treating the the patient and the family as well. And kids are just so much fun on a daily basis that I knew I'd never get burned out doing pediatrics.
0: And has that proven to be the case?
1: For the most part, my life is busier than planned on at the moment, but I still really derive a lot of joy from the three days a week I spend in the office.
0: And as I mentioned, your husband, Zach, is a pain specialist. I think most folks could understand how having those medical backgrounds uh, would be a big help in dealing with Lucy's situation. But can you give us some detail on what having that expertise has meant in her situation?
1: Yeah, I think it really meant an earlier diagnosis for her for a couple of different reasons. You know, as a pediatrician, I think subtle signs were obvious to me a little bit earlier than they might have been to other parents. But then also just in terms of my ability to advocate for her, you know, we, like many rare disease parents, were reassured many times. Lots of test results were normal. And so that reassurance wasn't inappropriate. But we still just had this, you know, nagging feeling that something was wrong. Um, and it was because of connections that I had at Stanford and other places that got Lucy admitted to the hospital when she was eight and a half months old and got an expedited workup and um, happened to be a connection that I had. Someone I trained with at UCSF um, was the neurogeneticist on service that week who sort of said, okay, I know this mom. She's not crazy. Let's send some broader genetic testing, even though ev- all the other tests are coming back the normal.
0: Yeah, that is pretty key, I would say. Yeah. You can probably understand then for parents who don't have this expertise, just how much more challenging this whole situation could be, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really challenging for families, especially when, um, you know, doctors are telling you everything's okay. And uh, My husband and I, even both as physicians, probably had the hardest time in the month and a half prior to her diagnosis when, you know, we were kind of alternately reassured on different days you know, one day when I thought everything was okay, and Zach was like, no, something's clearly wrong, and and the opposite days were true as well. And I think that would be really challenging for a family that, that didn't have the kind of support system to bounce things off of, um, and the ability to actually do something about it when you were having those feelings.
0: Absolutely. So it'd be great to get an understanding from you of PGAP-3 and the kind of clinical explanation of it, and then how it affects Lucy on a day-to-day basis.
1: Um, you know, we first started to notice something was amiss with Lucy at around four months old when she was just a little bit floppier than other babies. But she continued to make progress with physical therapy and everything until she got some sort of illness when she was about eight and a half months old. And, and this is pretty classic for um, lots of kids with genetic disorders that you know illness really brings out um, the symptoms of the disorder in a major way. And so at around eight and a half months old, she uh, had learned to sit up, but then stopped being able to sit up. She stopped babbling. Um, she started refusing to all solid food and she just was less interactive. She stopped making eye contact and was really, really fussy. Um, and those are pretty typical of the symptoms of PGAP-3. You know, there's hypotonia or low tone floppiness, lifelong ataxia or sort of inability to kind of be steady um, and know where your body is. Many kids with PGAP-3 don't walk. Um, Lucy's just learning to walk right now. And then there's intellectual disability as well and some autistic features. So Lucy has no expressive speech. There was maybe a couple times that she said a word with meaning, but it's not really reproducible. And she has a a lot longer processing time. So if you ask Lucy, you know, where's your head? You look back 30 seconds later and she's touching your head when you think she didn't get it at all. It affects every system in her body. Her gut is as low as her mind is. Um, So she has bad reflux and constipation and suffers a lot from tummy troubles. That, luckily as a pediatrician, I am somewhat good at treating, Um, but it still definitely impacts her on a daily basis. Yeah. And then um, about 70% of kids with Pgap3 get refractory seizures at some point in their life. Lucy, luckily, does not have seizures yet.
0: And can you tell us, for the clinicians in the audience, what the mechanism is that's at work here, what's missing, what the problem is?
1: Yeah. So it's an autosomal recessive disorder, meaning Lucy doesn't have a single working copy of her PGAP3 gene. Zach and I are both carriers um, for one faulty copy, and then she had the bad luck of getting both. So she doesn't make any functional PGAP3 protein. Um, The function of the pGAP3 protein is to modify the GPI anchor, which, if you know anything about cells, you know there are many cell signaling molecules anchored to the cell membrane, anchored to the outside of cells. And so the upshot is that Lucy's GPI anchors, the anchor that anchors all those little cell signaling molecules, is quite loose. And so her cell signaling, her cells don't communicate very well because the cell signaling molecules just sort of float off into the ether. And so, you know, alkaline phosphatase is a lab that we check on pretty much every standard comprehensive metabolic panel in in the country. Um, and alkaline phosphatase happens to be a GPI-anchored molecule. So a hallmark of this disease is very high alkafos because her alkafos just floats off into, into her serum. Um, and that was something we always noticed about her labs going through, although that's also very common in infancy, so it didn't mean anything all by itself. Well,
0: that's very helpful. Thanks for explaining that. So as I understand it, there is some some good news, potentially. Nationwide Children's Hospital in Ohio is working on a potential treatment. Can you uh, fill us in on what's happening there?
1: Yeah, yeah. They are a very famous center for gene therapy. Um, that was the center that developed the um, first gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, which is also a devastating pediatric disease. Um, that's been an incredibly effective and transformative therapy for families affected by that disease. And so when you know Lucy first got diagnosed, we sent off 10,000 emails to um, lots of different researchers across the world and never expected to hear anything back, but um, thankfully did hear back from Dr. Catherine Meyer, who runs now the Center for Gene Therapy there. Um, and she agreed to take on Lucy's case. She said, yeah, actually, you know what? PGAP3 is a, a pretty great fit for gene therapy. The gene's missing. If you put it back, it should work well. The size of the gene is important. Um, it fits well inside the AAV vector um, that they use for Walsh gene therapies at this point. And so Moonshots for Unicorns signed a contract with Nationwide Children's and and the progress has been great.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So. Why don't we get into Moonshots for Unicorns and uh, you know, have you give us the backstory on that and tell us what kind of progress you've been making.
1: I think, you know, like all parents, all physician parents and all non-physician parents, when we first got this diagnosis, we were devastated. Um, Lucy had actually begun to do a bit better after her initial hospitalization as she kind of recovered from whatever that little virus was. And so when we got the text from her neurogeneticist um, on April 18th, Lucy was sort of standing at our living room coffee table, smiling at us. And it seemed so discordant with the conversation we were having that, you know, we had a baby who would probably never walk and never talk and would probably develop severe seizures. And so we took our requisite week um, and cried a lot and went on a lot of hikes. And then we said, we can't do this forever. And so we got to work. And luckily we have... A huge number of friends who are very helpful, um, lawyer friends and nonprofit friends and everything who helped us within a month set up um, a five hundred one c three. We called it moonshots for unicorns because we know this is a moonshot, right? <laughs> there's uh, there's not a lot of neurodevelopmental diseases out there that have cures in a meaningful way. Um, there's a lot of treatments that are out there, but but not a lot of things that are are really transformative. Um, and we said, gosh, you know, there are so many of these single gene disorders that should be amenable to things like gene therapy and drug repurposing and everything. We don't want this just to be a focus of PCAP3. We want, you know, eventually this to be an organization that carves a path um, to help lots of families who are affected by single gene disorders. And uh, so we set up Moonshots for Unicorns um, cause all our kids are unicorns and we started fundraising.
0: Well, it's amazing that you've been able to get that off the ground and be so involved with that with everything else on your plate. So my hat's off to you. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that there is a connection to autism in all of this. Can you fill us in?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, when, when proteins don't function in the brain, the final common pathway is is fairly common across these single gene disorders that, you know, expressive speech is very often affected. Muscle tone is very often affected. Seizures are a common feature um, and then autistic features are really common too. Um, and, you know, I wonder how much autism out there um, is really due to single gene disorders. There are very many, um, of our families in the PGAP3 world who were given, you know, either just an autism diagnosis or maybe an Angelman's diagnosis, but didn't have the genetic reports to back it up that I think had genetic testing been sent earlier for those families, you know, they would have had had an underlying diagnosis. And I think a lot of times until those kids develop seizures, which often isn't until later childhood, you know, no one thinks to send genetic testing. And so one question that we have is, you know, with all of these disorders out there, um, if you can sort of fix the underlying gene, how much can you really affect those kinds of autistic features for those kids going forward? And I think there's really promising data on this. You know, there's some new ASO therapy for Angelman syndrome, which also has autistic features as part of it coming out of some groups in the Bay area here that have shown that kids are, you know, in their teens getting this for the first time and developing expressive speech. So it's incredibly encouraging.
0: Yeah, that's quite amazing. So on the Moonshots for Unicorns, Page, you talk about not being able to meet your child. Can you explain more about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think you know. I Lucy has two older sisters who are neurotypical, and you can just sort of look at them and listen to them play, and then look at Lucy and just wonder who she would have been. Because you know, when your first two kids are so different from each other, but still both so cool, you know, you when you have a third child, you sort of wonder, who are they going to be, right? And Lucy is this incredible human being herself. Um, And and obviously, we've met and love Lucy, but who would she have been if she didn't have this one missing protein, this one, you know, C to G transition in her DNA? What would her personality have been like? How would she have interacted with her sisters and everything? And that's what we mean by like, you know, we would love to meet the Lucy that had a PGAP three as part of her too.
0: That makes sense, and I'm so sorry. You know, it's it's so hard to listen to this as the parent of two daughters. I can't imagine uh, what it's like to go through all of this. And I'm just so, so amazed at how you've been able to, you know, obviously take great care of Lucy, but also do things that are going to potentially help so many other children. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks. You know, it's not a um a community that anyone chooses to be a part of, but I will say the community of rare disease parents is just an incredible community um, of everyone being willing to help each other and everyone realizing that you know the more we can can help each other, the more we help our own kids too.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Shiva and I have been so honored to speak to people like you, and we've met. A lot of rare disease parents and family members over the last couple of months, and what you're saying is absolutely true. The rare disease community is just full of remarkable and impressive and wonderful people. So we just have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to give you a shot at one of our favorite questions, which is uh, focused around the fact that we're a medical education company. So is there a myth or a gap uh, or something along those lines on a topic that you care deeply about, and you would say to Osmosis, you know, guys, it would be great if you could make a video about that. What would that be?
1: Yeah. One key takeaway that I've had is just we need a better way to do rare disease research in this country. That the idea that we ask parents who are dealing with a rare disease child and trying to go to physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy and figure out ketogenic diets and deal with insurance companies to ask those parents to also do fundraising to and find researchers and build a team is just not not a feasible model. This is not a good way to uh, to make sure that rare diseases are getting cured in our country. I don't know exactly what the answer is. I'm not a politician. But um, you know, we have had some conversations with uh, a team at the White House about kind of building a better structure for how we can we can get this research funded. And then the second takeaway that I would say to, you know, trainees and everyone out there is in medical school, we're taught that when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. And so don't always think of, you know, the rarest of the rare. And most of the time, things are okay And I think that while that's true, you should sometimes think of the zebra And that the other thing that's been a theme is, you know, if there's not a treatment, why test for it if it's not going to change your management? But I think in the world of genetic disorders, that advice should just go out the window because the power of diagnosis for families dealing with rare diseases, even if there's no treatment, you know, allowing those families to mobilize, to find other families who are dealing with the same conditions, to just not feel crazy that, you know, something is wrong with their child and to allow them, for me at least, you know, Lucy was so constipated and uncomfortable reflux wise. And I was trying, you know, all those conservative pediatrician things like prunes and pears and water. And once I found out there was a really good reason that her tummy was so backed up and hurt, we started aggressively treating her constipation, and she was a lot more comfortable because of it. And I think that that happens for a lot of families that it allows them to sort of say, Okay, well, I'm not working with a child who's neurotypical here. So my approach needs to be different. And so it's really transformative to have the diagnosis, even if there is no treatment. I look forward to a world where the newborn screen is just a whole exome sequence so that parents can get these diagnoses early and and do as much about them as they can.
0: Yeah. Talk about information being power. I mean, it's extraordinarily powerful in that case. Absolutely. I'll send you some information on this, but you and Shiv are in a mind meld about the zebra situation. He has spearheaded a big effort here at Osmosis and Elsevier to launch what we're calling the Year of the Zebra which is basically a big educational push to raise awareness about rare diseases. And it includes drawing a spotlight on particular rare diseases uh, throughout the course of the year. Elsevier is also going to be adding some uh, content to what it does. There's some announcements coming. It's all very exciting. And actually, at this moment that we're speaking, Shiv is over in Africa. He's uh, going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro um, as part of a fundraising effort for the year of the zebra.
1: That's so fantastic. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And it's certainly an honor for us to do whatever we can uh, to help out with this really, really important cause. So we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much, Dr. Landman, for taking the time to join us today. And we just wish you all the luck in the world with Moonshots for Unicorns and with Lucy.
1: Thank you so much. really appreciate it.
0: I'm Michael Caris, Thanks for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/slash/raise-the-line-podcast.